Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. We did it, Joe. There's a new president in the Oval Office, and he's ready to make some changes. Joe Biden wants the start of his presidency to be defined by rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, vaccinating the country against COVID-19, and pulling the American economy out of a crisis. The stakes on climate change just simply couldn't be any higher than they are right now. Uh, It is existential. And President Biden is deeply committed, totally seized by this issue, as you can tell by this executive order. The amount of vaccines that are going to be available for vaccinated vaccination sites will be a new record. 33 million doses of vaccine this week. Now you can see with the American Rescue Plan and the actions of this administration, um, health is here, as we've been saying, and hope is here. But will this be enough to tackle the problems that led to the Trump presidency? Is Biden too concerned about building bridges with the Republican Party? And is America finally ready to start tackling a climate emergency? In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking, what will Biden's America look like? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really excited to be joined down the line by the fantastic Kay Aronoff, staff writer at The New Republic and author of the upcoming book, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back. Hi, Kate. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. So let's start off with Biden's approach to his new presidency. It's quite trite by now to say that America is a divided nation, uh, but I said it anyway. Um, And we know that Biden won a bitterly fought election against Donald Trump. So In your view, what is his approach to the Republican Party? Is he interested in building bridges? Well, it's interesting because Biden throughout his whole career has really had one abiding political belief, which is in bipartisanship. His long career in the Senate was sort of made by making deals on pretty egregious policy, like the war on drugs and the war on crime. And I think that's what a lot of people really expected coming into the White House is that, you know, he would sort of talk a big game in the campaign to appease who he needed to, but, you know, would sort of go back to what, you know, he's done for his whole career, which is trying to make deals with Republicans, regardless of how regressive the outcomes. And what we've seen so far is that he's he's not really doing that in the way that I think a lot of folks on the kind of progressive end of the spectrum would have expected. I mean, we got the American Rescue Package or the American Rescue Plan passed through reconciliation. So without bipartisan support going through the Senate Budget Committee, which, you know, we probably wouldn't have expected um, based based on who, you know, Joe Biden has told us he is for the last 40 or so years. So he's not trying to appease the Republican Party in, in the same way that he has through most of his career. And I think part of that was helped by, you know, the news that the Senate would be controlled by Democrats came the same day that the right, you know, sort of egged on by the Republican Party stormed the U.S. Capitol, right? (laughs) There was a pretty, you know, clear indication that the Republican Party, which, you know, very large chunks of which 
uh, of their representatives voted not to authorize the results of the election. They weren't here to play nice and they, they weren't sort of interested in making deals and really aren't. You know, they are an anti-democratic party through and through and have been for a long, long time. So I think sort of starting off his his administration with that in the background and the very, very recent background, I think has, you know, shifted the political dynamics a bit. And that's for the best. That's not to say, you know, that I don't think for the next couple of months, we won't see a return to, you know, looking for some sort of bipartisan agreement, trying to, you know, find points of commonality, which on some things can be fine, right? You know, there are things like research and development funding, for instance, that might be able to pass sort of uncontroversially, but on much more pressing uh, issues, you know, things like dealing with the climate crisis. There aren't 60 votes in the Senate to get that over the edge. So remains to be seen. But I think signs so far are a little bit more promising <laughs> than we would have expected that Joe Biden is going to try to, you know, reach across the aisle and, and appeal to Republicans at all costs. Yeah, that's really interesting. And especially that piece, you know, around potentially it will change in the future on some of these particular issues where it has to. Two questions I have on that. One of them is the whole kind of unity ticket, as you say, that Biden ran on this whole like essentially kind of appealing to people's better natures to come together across difference and blah, blah, blah. I've heard a lot of really good analysis of that, you know, kind of saying, who are you asking to unite with whom um, and and why? And, you know, people on the left in particular saying, I, you know, I don't actually want to unite with fascists. And it, yeah, I was wondering kind of what your analysis is of that message, that kind of let's all come together. Some of the concerns I've heard raised are around essentially what that would mean for his policymaking. But it sounds like from what you're saying so far, that hasn't necessarily filtered through. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right about the kind of unity message, which yeah, I mean, we do still hear and I suspect might hear a little bit more as the midterm elections get closer. We were still a little ways out from that. But I think that that's exactly right. Like unify with who? Like, you know, I think it's a very different thing to say that Democrats should look to unify with organized white supremacists in paramilitary outfits who are looking to overturn the democratic process um, than to say that there might be a way to appeal to people who voted for Trump in either 2016 or 2020, you know, based on a sort of disillusion with the political process. And those, those two things are, I think, are rightfully understood as separate. There are ways to debate the latter, but the former, you know, sort of unifying with organized white supremacists should be off the table. I mean, it's terrible politics. And we've seen Democrats try to do something similar before of, you know, sort of watering down the message and try to not alienate right-wing voters. And, and you know, those people are not interested in coming to the table are probably not going to vote for Democrats and are not the sort of folks who the Democratic Party should be making appeals to, right? There are just a lot of people who don't vote <laughs> in this country and, you know, have grown really disillusioned with the political process and with, you know, a Democratic Party, to be blunt, that has not delivered for them. But, you know, I think calls for unity, which have always, especially in the presidential election, just seems so sort of watered down and so just like appealing to this real sort of fantasy idea, 
that we're just going to get back to some sort of normal, you know, before Trump, before politics were bad, supposedly. That never really held much weight. And I'm not sure how, I don't think it was effective in the presidential campaign. Uh, maybe optimistically, I think we're starting to move past that a, a bit. But again, I don't, you know, I think that that remains to be seen, like as to what, you know, the national strategy becomes for the midterms. Yeah. And the, I guess, final question on that one, then is, in this kind of approach that Biden's taking, what's his attitude or, I guess, engagement with the more left or progressive wing of his own party? I know some of my colleagues who are organizers in the States have mentioned how they thought that Biden and his team were way more receptive to their messaging and to their demands and things like that, obviously in the run-up. And then since then, he's kind of turned around and said things of groups like Sunrise, you know, like we don't negotiate with terrorists or, you know, something equivalent to that. So, Wondering if you have any thoughts on what is his approach to dealing with people on the left of the party and has that changed since um, he got elected? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my friends in the kind of progressive orbit who are working on climate politics and you know formations like Sunrise and other things, I think I've been pretty surprised by how receptive the administration has been to at least hearing from them. Uh, you know, people are on the phone with members of the White House. There's all these reports that uh, Ron Klain, Biden's chief of staff, is like talking to progressives, including from kind of movement spaces and progressive and left-leaning members of Congress more than he's talking to centrists and the centrists are sort of like mad about that. So I think people are pleasantly surprised. I think it remains to be seen whether that's working. I mean, it's sort of a smart strategy, I think, on the White House's part to be talking to people. I think it, you know, does really help make people feel heard and can probably ward off some protest, honestly, for them for a little while. But I think that there's also this other thing happening, which is that unlike the start of the Obama administration, uh, movements are just much stronger than they were in 2009 and 2010. And a lot of the folks who are involved with those are fairly young or, you know, at least were not kind of doing this level of politics in the Obama administration. And so I think it's a sort of strange thing for folks to sort of figure out how to strike that balance between kind of inside and outside for people who, you know, are like my age, I'm 29, for whom like talking to the White House is not a normal thing. is like a pretty novel experience. You know, I think that's a tough balance to strike. Like there was all this sort of talk coming into uh, this administration that, you know, we have no illusions about who Joe Biden is. We know better, you know, than to expect him to be this great progressive president. And, you know, there will be protests off the bat. And I think that's a bit easier to say when you haven't been on the phone with them <laughs> in the um, in the lead up. And I think that's a sort of confusing thing. You know, I've been a little surprised that there haven't been more protests, that there hasn't been a sort of more confrontational approach to the White House. And I think that, you know, is in part a testament to the fact that people are sort of negotiating this new relationship to a Democratic uh, administration and a Democratic White House or a Democratic Congress. That hasn't been the case for a lot of people, um, which is not to say I don't think there won't be protests and, and that, you know, there is not going to be a sort of more confrontational approach than what we've seen so far. Um, but I do think people have sort of been working that out for themselves. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it remains to be seen uh, whether that will remain the case. But let's focus a bit more on some specific issues then that Biden's up against. So the pandemic's obviously put healthcare at the front of everyone's minds over the past year. Did his presidential campaign mention healthcare much? And is widening access to healthcare in America likely to play a big role in the Biden presidency, would you say? 
Yeah, I mean, healthcare did not play a huge role, sort of ironically, in the campaign. I mean, Biden, as your listeners will probably know, beat Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary and explicitly, you know, was not calling for what Sanders was calling for, which was Medicare for all, um, which was to give healthcare to everyone, which we don't happen to move away from our kind of horrible Rube Goldberg machine of a for-profit healthcare system. And so we got from Biden kind of the same thing we've heard from a lot of establishment Democrats, which is like making healthcare more accessible and affordable and, you know, creating opportunities for access and all these sort of euphemisms to improve, you know, our pretty broken system in mild ways, which is ironic because we're in a pandemic. I mean, we're still in a pandemic and we're really in the grips of it in the summer and through the campaign. So it's strange because I think, you know, what (laughs) I I and others, I think, would see as a real rebuke of our really terrible healthcare system has not, I think, by virtue just of kind of where Biden and where the administration stands on this, um, has not been really parlayed into an opportunity for universal health care, which would have made our response to the COVID-19 crisis better. Wouldn't have fixed it. Wouldn't have like, you know, solved all the many problems we have, but, you know, certainly would have alleviated uh, some suffering. So, and it really hasn't been talked about too much so far in the administration. It hasn't been sort of named as a priority in part because we're sort of have a limited set of tools in terms of what we can what we can pass and through this reconciliation process, which sort of is more so focused on big spending. But it really hasn't come up as much as one might expect it to in the middle of a global pandemic that the U.S. has handled absolutely horribly, which, you know, is a bit mystifying to me. Yeah, it's quite strange, um, but interesting to know that that's how it's all playing out. Beyond just the health impacts, and as you say, that may not have been as mainstreamed in all of this as one might expect, the pandemic has also, as we know, had devastating impact on economies around the world. The US is no exception. Biden has introduced a $1.9 trillion stimulus package called the American Rescue Plan, which you mentioned. Could you just tell us a bit more about what that is and what it includes? Yeah, so the um, American Rescue Plan is a huge piece of legislation relative to what what we're used to passing and is a stimulus that sort of covers a, a lot of things which are largely temporary and, and largely, you know, focused on relief for the pandemic, but does a lot of things. And, you know, I'm not, I haven't read through like all many, many pages of it, but expands our uh, welfare state in ways that are, are pretty unique in recent memory in, in the U.S. So creates a child tax credit, expands unemployment insurance um, well beyond what it would have. You know, there are families of four which could get $12,000 as a result of this bill, which is nothing to balk at. It sends out, you know, $1,400 checks. You know, I got mine in the mail uh, a couple of days ago. The people in the United States making below $80,000. It starts to phase out after $70,000. I believe it's what they landed on. But it expands the U.S. safety net in ways that it hasn't been expanded since the 1960s, really. And, and you know, gets us sort of almost to the level of like what I think are sort of normal levels of social spending in like parts of Europe, but is temporary, right? You know, there are really transformational things, I think, about this legislation, but they will expire before too long. And and just in recent days, the 
administration has said it's not going to try to make the child tax credit permanent as it said it once would. So, you know, I think the kind of longstanding effects of this, I think we'll, we've yet to see, but it is, you know, I would say both like a historically important piece of legislation in terms of the break it represents with the sort of austerity thinking that defined the last stimulus to the Great uh, Recession here, and just really helps people in a very tangible sense dealing with the pandemic that's, you know, obviously devastated folks' economic livelihoods. Yeah, I mean, what you've said around kind of not continuing it beyond um, the temporary measures is obviously really crucial. But I was also thinking about, I guess, the impact more on the on the discourse or like the social understanding of the role of the state? And is it something that you think might have long-term positive effects when it comes to people having higher expectations of what it is actually possible to get from the state, what kind of support they can expect? Or do you think it could potentially not go in that direction and actually just be quite quickly forgotten? Yeah, I think remains to be seen in some sense, but there is a real shift happening, which I think like can be easy to overlook or like forget about on the the left. But, you know, just compared to 10 years ago when the Obama administration was told by, you know, expert after expert that they needed a stimulus over a trillion dollars. And the economist and the administration sort of put on their pundit hat and said, no, 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 people won't like that. We can't spend that much money, Um, you know, really cap it at like $800 billion. And that was a disaster. <laughs> People sort of knew that it was a disaster, including, you know, in sort of policy wonk circles in Washington, D.C., and in like the economics field, you know, which has never been as sort of bad as its worst representatives and people like Larry Summers who, you know, come into the administration. But I think, you know, the there's a lot of things sort of shaped what we're seeing, this real frame shift in terms of thinking about like, A, what the government can do and what it should do and be the real kind of power of the purse that the U.S. government has. So one is, I think, this sort of shift among like wonks, the sort of average like economic policy expert is more progressive than they were 10 years ago and, and less sort of adherent to these sort of strange lines about austerity and, and the need to, you know, tighten our belts and all that stuff. But I think related to that and what's driving it, I would argue is, you know, movements, right? The last 10 years have seen Occupy Wall Street, have seen the movement for Black Lives, have seen, you know, a resurgent climate movement um, really, you know, rose up in part in response to the sluggish recovery from the recession last time. Um, But also just the fact that there are like really roiling crises that are actively killing people that are really posing a, a, a tangible threat to a lot of people's livelihoods. And the idea that like a deficit should be some constraint on policy in that in that regard and in that, you know, environment is absurd, (laughs) I think, patently to a lot of people. And I think movements have really helped point that out, that, you know, if there is like a really pressing public policy concern, the size of the federal deficit is a sort of weird, regressive thing to consider in that respect. And so. I think, you know, movements have played a huge role in changing um, what sorts of things wonks and policymakers, including people in the White House, think are important. And that's really showed up in a lot of different ways in the policy conversation. I think it, you know, it's not that those things have been totally metabolized into what's happening in Washington, but I do think it's really shifted, shifted the ground in terms of how issues get talked about. 
Oh my gosh, we need that ground to shift here. I think there's uh, certainly movements have work to do on getting the government to be less fixated on shrinking the deficit and more on um, those real term issues for sure. But let's talk about what isn't included in the stimulus package. There's a big campaign in the US, obviously, to get the federal minimum wage raised to $15 an hour that we hear about a lot, but this didn't make it in. Um, Why do you think that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I mean, there's like a sort of proximate answer, which is our really terrible governing system, which is is not, you know, set up to like deal with a multiracial democracy. You know, that is not what the U.S. Senate is intended to do. But anyway, so when the um, $15 minimum wage came up for a vote as part of this most recent package, it was a divided vote and got struck down by the Senate parliamentarian, which is this position that many people did not know existed before this happened, but Democrats decided not to contest that, which they arguably could, and so it didn't make it into the package. The other, you know, deciding factor in that is that there were moderate Democrats, moderate, probably the wrong word, but, you know, more right-wing Democrats who did not want a $15 minimum wage, most famously uh, the senator from Arizona, Kristen Sinema, sort of enthusiastically, like, tendered her thumbs-down vote with a little curtsy on the floor of the Senate and is not interested in people making like what is now, I would argue, still pretty low, low wage, especially considering that the fight for 15 first raised the demand years ago and when $15 got you more than it does now. That's kind of inflation has, you know, made things more expensive. So there's a sort of boring bureaucratic answer for why it's not in there. But, you know, the other answer is just that there are still big parts of the Democratic Party, which, you know, take a lot of corporate money and which are not are more loyal to their donors than they are to constituents who, by very large margins, would like to see the minimum wage raised in this country. And there's still, you know, proving a gap. And that's not to put that all on Democrats. I want to say, you know, very clearly that every Republican voted against a $15 minimum wage, that we have a whole party in this country, which is sort of opposed to working people making anything more than poverty wages as a sort of party line. Um, so, so there are many reasons, but in a context when when Democrats control the Senate by a very narrow margin, those you know sort of small sliver of corporate Democrats have a lot more power. Mm. So, what else was missing from the stimulus package? Then, was there anything in there on the climate crisis? No, nothing yet. <laughs> the Biden wow. administration has talked to yeah talked a really big game. I mean. As small as the last stimulus was, Obama signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act in February of 2009, and that included $90 billion for clean energy, a lot of it toward like tax breaks and research and development. So uh, we haven't seen anything like that passed so far. We haven't seen any investments in climate um, in this administration. People are looking toward the infrastructure and recovery packages to come as sort of the place where that will happen. And, you know, I think that is not a foregone conclusion that it will. But yeah, there was nothing on climate in this package. Okay, so the stimulus package obviously falls short there on climate, but Biden has taken some big actions on climate, right, which you've described as a step back from being a death wish. Could you tell us what policies he has enacted and probably why they don't go far enough? Yeah, step step back from being a, a death wish. Is, <laughs> I stand by that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Like that, you know, I don't think should be understated. Just to like peel back what the Trump administration did, and so I think a lot of what's been happening at the cabinet level is to undo a lot of the repeals to 
like EPA rules and things like methane and auto efficiency standards that, you know, the Trump administration really took a, a bludgeon to. There's been some uh, kind of initial steps to restrict drilling on public lands. Although, you know, again, these these are all sort of temporary impending review, but uh, within the first week, the department had, had issued a temporary moratorium on new leasing and permitting on public lands. Drillers will stockpile those things, so it didn't really have much sort of immediate impact on, on the amount of drilling that was happening on public lands, but I think is important in some ways and, and could be a sign of of things to come. Um, you know, we're about to hear more about the Build Back Better agenda, which has promised to invest a lot in green infrastructure. That will sort of find its way into the next infrastructure package. And the White House is sort of looking at how to parcel that out into different pieces of of legislation. Um, So there is a lot to come and it is early days yet. But I think the problem is just like an administration can be much better than, I mean, certainly than Trump. And, you know, it is more ambitious on climate than anything we've seen to date, right? But, you know, the scale of the problem is just so vast that even going well above and beyond what the Obama administration did or was able to do on climate is still just so sort of far off from what's needed, which is, you know, a sort of massive level of state investment is, you know, huge regulations to restrict drilling. And that's a sort of huge task that is very, very difficult in a divided Congress and with such narrow, a narrow majority in the Senate and, you know, a, a whole party, like having one one half of, of that be, you know, members of a party, which is sort of irrationally aligned against anything called climate policy um, in ways that, you know, are more extreme even than like the fossil fuel industry itself. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we haven't seen much yet, but there are a lot of barriers, but I think there's still a lot, a lot more that the administration could do um, that it has not done yet. Yeah, so circle back to our conversation at the top then. There's obviously been a massive boost in climate campaigning in the States over the last few years, as we've discussed, the Green New Deal Network, politicians like AOC, Sunrise Movement. So carrying on from what you were saying earlier, do you think that Biden will be more likely to listen to their demands in parallel to his own team's agenda? You know, you mentioned these kind of calls to the White House and stuff like that. Like, how likely is he to be influenced by those groups moving forward? I think we're just starting to see sort of the limits of how much the administration will do or will push for as a result of conversations, right? You know, there have been a lot of conversations between folks who are pushing for things like a Green New Deal, both within Congress, you know, people like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and, and the squad and from, you know, outside of Congress and formations like the Sunrise Movement. But, you know, I don't think that we're probably going to see much more than we have without some sort of really big disruption or or big, you know, protest movement that really sort of challenges the administration. And, you know, I think that's just how presidencies work, right? Like White Houses do not generally do things they aren't really sort of browbeaten into doing in a progressive way. We don't have a great history of passing massive policy, period, without a lot of pressure on people who are 
in power. I mean, that's sort of the history of things like the Keystone XL pipeline, which, you know, was finally canceled. You know, I, I didn't mention this, but one of the very good things Biden did in his first week in office was cancel the Keystone XL pipeline, which is great. And is the result of, you know, years and years of pressure, most of that led by folks in indigenous communities that live along the route of the pipeline to shut it down and to really raise alarm bells about the dangers of that project. And so, you know, without big mobilization without sort of a big shift. I don't I don't think we're going to see that much more on climate from the administration and I think, you know, what they'll be interested in doing and what they're likely to do, you know, things like investing in electric vehicles, expanding wind power and clean energy, which um we saw some news on today. I think that can really only go so far without a real challenge to push them to do a lot more. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't say that to be like, sort of like, you know, just say, oh, the movements will make it happen, like the movements will do it. But I think there is just still a big push to be had in terms of making sure politicians' feet are held to the fire. We really haven't seen that yet. To his credit, I think Biden is kind of a retail politician and, you know, is willing to shift with the political winds and... I think it's movements that shift those winds, right? It will become more obvious to the, to the administration um, that it needs to do a lot more on climate if there are, you know, big reasons for him to change and not just sort of to like stay the course with what he's proposing on Build Back Better. That makes sense. I think the movement energy point. Um, and what about the kind of bipartisanship point? To what extent do you think it's kind of possible for him to take on climate in America while also trying to tread that bipartisan line that... Um, you know, that it's probably going to be necessary to get some of these pushed through. It's such a strange, like, context to try to push climate policy through because the the sort of vehicle for it right now, unless the filibuster is abolished, which basically, like, keeps things that don't have 60 votes from coming to a vote, which is, you know, just like an arcane detail that is totally maddening about the way the U.S. Congress works. So unless we get rid of the filibuster, like the vehicle for climate policy and like most other policy period that, you know, you want legislative action on goes through a reconciliation fight, which is a big spending bill, essentially, that will go through the Senate Budget Committee. And we get two more of those is sort of the thinking an infrastructure and recovery package. And so what folks are looking at now is how to sort of shoehorn, um, as much as they can into that. And there's just different sort of thinking about how to do that. And then one sort of, this all is, is like leaks and a little bit circumstantial at this point, but one way that reportedly the White House is talking about doing this is to, you know, do the sort of uncontroversial stuff, uncontroversial parts of infrastructure through a bipartisan vote. So things like roads and bridges that Republicans are more likely to vote on, do the, all that through a sort of Republican package, but do all the climate, immigration, universal pre-K, all the other stuff through reconciliation, which might be risky. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a bit risky to you know allow for a vote on one thing that is probably a lot of fairly uncontroversial stuff and then put everything else in in another basket. You know, I, th I think we just don't know enough right now to, to say which path it's going to be. But I think there's just, there's very little good climate policy that can get 60 votes in the Senate. And that all does really have to go through um, reconciliation, barring, you know, the filibuster being abolished, which sucks. I mean, like our Congress is a really terrible institution. Like it's not, again, set up to like govern a democracy, govern a multiracial democracy. And there's a uh, sort of 
democratic reform package that's on the table, which you know, would be huge and might spark a fight about the filibuster. But I feel like the big lesson for me coming out of watching the first couple months of the administration is that we're sort of screwed without, you know, big reforms for a democratic system, which just makes it basically impossible to do anything we might want on climate or otherwise. Mm, So zooming out a little bit then, um, but, you know, sticking with climate, obviously the COP26, the big UN climate summit is happening in Glasgow this November. So based on, you know, what we've been discussing so far, now that the US has rejoined the Paris Agreement, do you think that Biden's likely to go in all guns blazing for climate action and repping the US as leaders in this space? What do you think he'll do? How do you think he'll play it? Yeah, that's been the rhetoric so far. Yesterday, the White House announced these like 40 countries are inviting to this big summit ahead of Glasgow to, you know, talk about how the U.S. is is leading on climate. So that's that's definitely the intention is to, you know, put the U.S. on top of the climate leadership mantle, which I find unsatisfying for um a lot of reasons. I mean, for one, like there's no reason why the rest of the world should believe that the U.S. is the leader on climate. Like it was instrumental in undermining the Kyoto Protocols um, way back when is a big part of the reason why the Paris Agreement targets are non-binding, why that agreement you know, has so few teeth to do everything it could on climate. And, you know, we just had four years of Trump. We just had four years of, in which, you know, we left the left the agreement, passed no climate policy, moved backwards in in a lot of ways. And even under Democratic administrations, the Obama administration, you know, encouraged fossil fuels in all sorts of ways, namely through the fracking boom and, you know, repealing the crude oil export ban, really selling American fracked gas to the rest of the world. The U.S. doesn't have much of a ground to stand on as of now um, around claiming a mantle to climate leadership. And you've seen some sort of rhetoric out of the U.S. climate Envoy John Kerry, who used to be Secretary of State, sort of saying, well, you know, the U.S. needs to be kind of humble about this. But I think that is a lot quieter than the kind of swaggering U.S. leadership um, line on this front. So obviously the best thing the U.S. can do vis-a-vis climate is to bring down its own emissions as quickly as possible, you know, and take account for its historical responsibility for this crisis, which is just completely vast. But I think we're seeing the same thing, uh, which has been pretty characteristic of U.S. climate policy, which is to, you know, sort of focus any international attention on things like the Paris Agreement, on, you know, U.N. climate talks, but really ignore the, the really powerful levers that the U.S. has in the world system, which is, you know, sort of veto power within the Bretton Woods institutions, um, the ability to push for widespread debt relief um, that could make, you know, an energy transition possible for many parts of the world where it's not, could affect big reforms to bilateral trade agreements to sort of peel away the protections for polluters, could push for reforms to intellectual property protections to make clean energy, you know, really accessible to big parts of the world. And we haven't seen that yet, right? We just haven't seen the U.S. pick up these other tools for climate policy that it really has. And I don't know if we will. <laughs> I certainly hope so. But it's, it's also, you know, has not been a huge part of the climate conversation here, which has gotten much more, the sort of mainstream conversation on climate has gotten a lot more progressive in the last several years, and you know, in part through conversations around the Green New Deal. But to date, that has focused a lot more on on the domestic side and, you know, has not been, I think, as ambitious on uh, international climate policy. 
So we'll see. I mean, I think there's a real opportunity for solidarity among climate movements in different parts of the world. But in the U.S., the conversation on international climate policies is lagging a bit behind the one on domestic policy. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the climate emergency is obviously international and and one country can't solve it by itself. And you've written that one of the few truly bipartisan opinions is anti-China sentiment. So can you talk a bit more about that just before we wrap up and how it might limit action on climate? Yeah, yeah. So we saw this a bit in the in the presidential election, but in the first couple months of the administration, the State Department and the kind of foreign policy establishment, which is pretty, you know, right wing and I think a pretty objective sense, is very hawkish at the least, has said in no uncertain terms that, you know, we disagreed with the tactics that the Trump administration used, but we really think that the Trump administration's approach to China was the right one, but we would like to do that in a more multilateral way. So, so far, Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, has been making these sort of diplomatic trips to basically recruit an alliance against China. There's energy in Congress around an anti-China bill, um, which is, you know, how it's talked about in very mainstream circles to sort of spur on domestic manufacturing to like, give the United States a competitive edge over China. My kind of take on this is I think it has much less to do with what actually is happening in China, which I think is worth having a conversation about in its own right. But I think a lot of it really has to do with the way the United States is sort of conceptualizing of itself in the world after a year of disastrously handling a pandemic after, you know, Donald Trump. And there's a long history here of the U.S. trying to make itself, to better itself internally by cultivating conflict externally. Obviously, the Cold War is a big example of this, of, you know, pushing for big expansions and in the welfare state to, you know, make ourselves look better and on the, on the world stage. And I think we're seeing something similar with China, which is that, you know, the U.S. has a sort of damaged ego right now after the last year in the last four years in in, in some sense and is looking to like find an external enemy to like make itself make itself great again that's not how democrats would phrase it but i think it's how that's sort of being conceptualized and and on climate that's just totally disastrous right like the the relationship between the u.s and china sort of thawing in the obama administration was very widely seen as a precursor to the paris agreement happening there needs to be some sort of like strategic diplomacy with China because, you know, the U.S. And, and China are the world's two biggest polluters. Like there has to be some kind of cooperation in order, you know, to make much progress at all on climate. And most of the foreign policy establishment is just really not interested in that. Um, is just not interested in seeing this as anything other than a conflictual relationship that, you know, will continue to be so and kind of using that to sort of extract certain domestic policy gains. And it's awful. I mean, and it's, I don't think we can like really understand the kind of rising bipartisan anti-China rhetoric as apart from the rise of um, anti-Asian violence in the U.S. I mean, there's been just a real sort of raising of the temperature around this through Trump and, and, you know, continuing on into a democratic administration. It's having real consequences. Like, you know, this is a real threat to just be saying that China is a threat, blaming China for the virus and having absolutely no sort of nuance or, you know, real critical thought about, A, 
what does that actually mean? Like, what does it mean for China to be a threat that is just so seldom explained in the mainstream? And, and just, you know, it's irresponsible. I think it's really dangerous rhetoric to be posing a massive, massive country with many, many people in it as a sort of like monolithic threat to the U.S. And we're seeing how that plays out. And it, it's horrible. So, you know, I think it's really dangerous for any number of reasons to see politicians across the aisle egging on a Cold War, a new Cold War with China. And I think there's been some pushback to that, but it's really just very worrying so far for, for a number of reasons, including climate. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my last question um, on, you know, we know that anti-Asian racism in the U.S. is on the rise and it's certainly um, the same here in the US, we had the horrendous Atlanta spa shootings a couple of weeks ago and, and a number of other horrendous attacks. And obviously, you've kind of mentioned the connections between that and the anti-China sentiment. But with the early months of his presidency being marked by such a high profile mass shooting, one of many, do you think Biden is likely to push for gun control reforms? Or is that something we can't yet predict? I think it could happen. I mean, this isn't my wheelhouse. So Directly, and that I mean, I don't report on it as much as I do on climate. But, um, you know, I think one of the consequences of just having so many mass shootings so reliably in the US, often carried out by white supremacists, there is energy for gun control in a way that there really hasn't been before. And I think we've seen the sort of big gun lobby here, the NRA, um, really take a hit in terms of how far it can get politically. So I think it could happen. I would imagine to people from the UK looking at the United States, it seems like self-evident this should happen. But I hope that that's true. <laughs> and I hope that we get some just very easy, low-hanging fruit of gun control very soon. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like there's a lot to hope for in this moment. But, uh, you know, as we've said many times, um, I think we'll have to wait and see how things play out. But there's some good, there's some good signs. There's some good signs. I'm not despairing just yet. That is all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much, Kate Aronoff, for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? You can go to The New Republic. That's tnr.com. You know, that's where most all my writing is published. Uh, also lots of other great content on the site if you're looking for coverage of American politics. And if you would like, find me on Twitter at Kate Aronoff. And I've got a book coming out, Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back, which is coming out in the UK on May 13th. Yeah, this has been really, really great. Thanks for, um, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to deconstruct all those things with us. Super, super useful um, for all our lovely listeners. But that is it for the Weekly Economics podcast today and also for this series. But don't worry, we will be back very soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.